Microsoft's new direction with Copilot, SAP's succession plan, data management and retention, and the tech skills shortage. That's just a few of the topics we're going to cover here in episode number 159 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 159. My name's Eric Kimberling, here with Darian Fiakuski. Darian, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Your first time co-hosting the show with me, so thank you for being here, and uh, you've got a lot of great stuff that uh, you'll be helping us walk through here in just a moment. Uh, before we jump into our agenda for today's episode, just a couple of logistical things. One, uh, this is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of transformation. And secondly, we put out new episodes every Wednesday, so you can find new episodes at transformationgroundcontrol.com. This show is produced by Major Tom Productions and sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is the company that I'm a, the CEO of. And uh, Third Stage Consulting, if you don't know, is an independent and technology agnostic digital transformation consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformation journeys, including the digital strategy, the software evaluation, the selection, and the implementation sides of change. So uh, you can learn more about us at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also follow us on uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, etc. I've uh, got a great show for you here today. Uh, we're going to get into a bunch of stuff. We're going to cover some audience questions here to start. Darian's going to walk us through a few of the uh, questions we've, we've received recently on social media. And we're also going to get into a couple newsworthy items in the digital transformation space. One is the uh, co-pilot ads that we're on uh, at the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago, for those of you that uh, may have seen it, or maybe you didn't see the Super Bowl if you're international or if it wasn't a good time for you to watch, but there were some good um, some good ads, and one of the big advertisers of the Super Bowl was, was Microsoft Copilot. Uh, we're going to get into SAP succession plan at the CEO level, so they've made some changes at the executive level. We're going to dive into that. And then later in the show, we'll have our first guest, uh, Chad Baker, who's the CEO and founder of LAE Software. He's going to be on the show, and we're going to talk through and dive into data management and retention um, and what it means to your digital transformation and how to manage that whole data retention aspect of transformation. That's a topic we've never covered in this this uh, podcast up until now, so that'll be an exciting topic. And then later, we're going to get into the tech skills shortage. We're going to play you a clip and uh, dive into some of the challenges with, with the tech skills shortage in the digital transformation and ERP software space right now. So before we jump in uh, to our meteor topics, I guess, to start, uh, what are some of the audience questions you have from social media for us here today, Darian? Yeah, so the first audience question that we received was, this person is seeing a lot of people joining the tech industry from non-tech careers previously. This is something that is enabled due to the rise of low-code technologies, in their opinion, like Microsoft Power Platform. What are your thoughts or take on this, Eric? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And first of all, I'd say that it's generally, I would view that as a strength. Someone that goes from a business-oriented career, uh, maybe comes from operations or more on the business side of things, and then decides to make the switch over to technology. 
I think it gives you an awesome and a very strong uh, foundation to build on. And, and it gives you that good blend of business and technology experience, which a lot of technical consultants, quite frankly, don't have. So I think it's a great idea. And it's a great thing. And I think this person is right. It is enabled largely by the fact that you have uh, low code, no code software, uh, configuration tools are becoming more simplified, you know, for an end user to be able to, to do their own uh, configuration and personalization of software without having to bring in the, the heavy hitters from your IT group or whatever. Um, so I think all that stuff is good. And then, of course, Power BI is meant to be sort of a, a less techie way for you to gather the data and the reporting and the analytics and the business intelligence you need out of your existing legacy system. So I've, I wholeheartedly agree with that person's comment and observations, and I, th I think it's a good it's a good observation and a, and a good strategy for this for this person, I would suggest. Yeah, totally. And I think we'll touch on this more later. But with the tech talent shortage, do you see that also playing into this where maybe there's just more opportunities for people that previously weren't in a tech position to now come into more of a tech position or role in a company? Yeah, I do. Largely because, you know, partially because technology is changing so quickly and um, with the advent of the cloud and business intelligence and artificial intelligence and just all these changing technologies, emerging technologies, it's creating a lot of demand in the technology space. And at the same time, it's making older skills obsolete faster. So a lot of this tech workforce that was relevant 10 years ago is no longer relevant. So you're sort of cycling through skill sets a lot faster now. So you either, the only way to replace those, those technology competencies are to either upskill people that are already in the space and or bring in new people that maybe have a strong business background or some other career aspiration earlier on, and then they switch over to, to the technology side. So yeah, I, I uh, completely agree. I think the, um, the, the shortage of, of skills is definitely going to make uh, a lot of opportunity for, uh, for people in the tech space, especially as you look at like artificial intelligence and how the world is still trying to figure out how to use artificial intelligence. I know we're going to talk a lot about AI throughout this episode, but that's, that's one thing I think is putting a lot of pressure on society in general to create more tech skills and to create more people that have those tech competencies that are required today. Yeah, awesome. Um, the next question that we have from our socials is, what are your thoughts on the Microsoft Power Platform to drive the modernization of legacy apps slash processes? Are you also seeing a lot of movement in the non-dynamic organizations? And what is your perception on that awareness of the technology? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. It's interesting how we're, we're sort of circling around a lot of Microsoft stuff here in this episode. Uh, we'll also talk about SAP and, and uh, other vendors too, but we seem to be talking a lot about uh, Power BI. We're going to talk about Copilot here uh, in a little bit. Um, but yeah, Power BI is a, I think it's an underrated tool. It's, it's something that's, it's, uh, you know, it's been around for a long time. It's used by a lot of organizations, but in today's day and age, when you're going through digital transformation, a lot of times organizations don't think about something like a Power BI. They think about something that's a little bit cooler and slicker and maybe a little bit sexier, like a new ERP system in the cloud or whatever. Um, and that stuff's all relevant, but whenever you implement new technologies, like new enterprise technologies to replace your your back office systems and, and your, uh, your your other systems throughout the organization, you're going to have, first of all, it's going to take some time to implement. It's going to take, for many organizations, years before you fully deploy those systems and get the value out of it. And Power BI is a way for you to get value out of your existing systems and data in the short term, and it allows you to 
to make some incremental improvements to your workflows and your visibility and transparency into data and all that stuff. So it's a good way to, it's at the very least a very good interim solution um, to help organizations that might be on a multi-year longer term digital transformation journey. And then of course, you know, a lot of organizations, you know, feel like they're going to be, um, you know, obsolete or they're going to be backed into a corner by a lot of the software vendors, um, cloud deadlines, you know, the migration to the cloud, they're, they're putting deadlines in place, SAP, for example, which we're going to, we're going to talk about SAP here in a moment, but SAP, for example, has defined uh, 2027 as the deadline for legacy SAP customers to get off their old legacy SAP system and convert to S4 HANA, which is more of the cloud platform, the newer cloud platform. The reason I bring this up is a lot of times there's a lot of organizations out there that think their only option is to just convert to the cloud solution and do it by whatever deadline the vendor has set because they're terrified of the idea of not having support past a certain point. And what a tool like Power BI can do, and it's not just Power BI, there's other tools out there um, that can enable this, like Snowflake is an example. It's a BI workflow-based tool. There's also Palantir, which is more of a interoperability sort of tool that allows you to get more value out of your legacy systems. What these technologies do is it gives you a little bit more runway and gives you potentially a longer life cycle before you have to retire those systems. Now, the software vendors that are trying to get you to retire systems are going to tell you that's not a good option, that you should absolutely just buy their new software because they're going to make more money that way. But the reality is you have to go at your pace, and it has to make sense for your organization. If your your maintenance is going to lapse or if you're going to be on an obsolete system for a bit longer, Power BI, Snowflake, Palantir, those are all good technologies that are good alternatives to help you get a little more runway. Yeah, makes sense. That's cool. Okay, great. Well, those are great uh, topics. Thanks for bringing those up or those questions from the audience, uh, Darian. That's that's good stuff. Uh, we're going to continue this thread and, and dive into a couple of newsworthy hot topics here in just a moment. We're going to talk about the uh, evolution and the direction of Microsoft's Copilot. We're going to talk about SAP succession plan here after a break. And then later, we're going to have Chad Baker on the show from LAE Software. He's going to be on talking about data management and retention and how that ties into or should tie into your digital transformation and then last but not least, we'll get to the tech skills shortage uh, here later in the episode. So be sure to stick around. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 159. My name is Eric Kimberling here at Darian Fiakuski. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can uh, also check us out on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And this is the podcast that has everything to do with uh, digital transformation. The show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, and we're an independent 
uh, tech agnostic consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. And uh, the show is produced by Major Tom Productions. So thank you for being here today. So uh, you've got a couple newsworthy hot topics for us here today, Darian. What have you got in store for us? Yeah, so we got some great hot topics today. The first one is Microsoft Super Bowl ad for their rebranded AI known as Copilot. So TheVerge.com wrote an article about Microsoft's Super Bowl ad where Microsoft basically introduced their AI innovation, also known as Copilot, like said. This technology is basically designed to assist users in various tasks, including writing code, providing real-time suggestions and guidance to people living their everyday life or doing their work. This ad highlights the potential of AI to increase productivity and creativity across all sorts of industries. And with AI Copilot, the developers then can streamline their workflow and overcome challenges more efficiently and quickly throughout their days, basically. This article also discusses the significance of Microsoft's investment in AI and the implications for the future of technology. It emphasizes the growing role of AI driving innovation and shaping the way we work. So with all that being said, Eric, what do you think about AI or any sort of AI that has been used like Copilot that can be widely adopted by people in their everyday lives, but also by companies in the tech industry specifically? And do you think that people will use it more consistently in their everyday lives, especially in the tech industry? Why or why not? What do you think that? Yeah, well, well, I think Microsoft has a really cool strategy f- for AI. I mean, not only are they they're big investors in uh, OpenAI, and I think they still have an equity stake in in uh, OpenAI, which is the back-end AI model that fuels or feeds into um, ChatGPT. So ChatGPT really took off around this time last year. It really caught fire and sort of hit the mainstream. Can't believe, I can't believe it's only been a year. It feels like longer ago that uh, OpenAI and ChatGPT really took off. But it's fascinating to me because OpenAI really caught on so quickly, and I, it's in my opinion, highly unusual for a consumer technology to catch on that widespread that quickly. So Microsoft already sort of had an edge, I'd say, with OpenAI. ChatGPT took off. Um, And then what they've done is they've sort of, I think what they're trying to do is maybe compete and differentiate themselves against Google a bit more to where instead of, you know, now you go to Google and we all use Google or, you know, 90% of searches throughout the world, I think, are based in Google. Um, But in Bing has always sort of been a, a distant second uh, on the Microsoft side. But I think what they're doing now is they're, I think they're, I don't know that they've fully replaced Bing. If you still go to Bing, it's still there. But I think what they're trying to do is rebrand it or rethink how you interact with queries and conversations and searches and things of that nature to where now if you go to Bing or to Copilot, you you can do whatever you want. You can do a more traditional search. You could, um, you could do more of a chat GPT conversational sort of thing, like write me, you know, write me a script for the next, uh, episode of transformation ground control and focus on copilot and AI or whatever. I could give it some things to give me a script for, um, even though I'm, I'm terrible at reading scripts. So it wouldn't work for me, but for others, maybe. Um, so you can do a lot of different conversational things like that. And then what's really cool, what I think is awesome about copilot and slash Bing, I'm, I'm kind of interchanging them, even though they're technically different. Um, but with this whole copilot model, um, you can go and if you want, like, back to your point about the creative side of it, if you want it to create like a an image of you and I sitting here and, you know, 
sitting here filming this podcast and it's going to make me look like I'm 25 years old or whatever, I can do that within the interface of Copilot um, because it inter- interfaces with uh, Dolly. If you're familiar with Dolly, it's more of a visual, uh, creative, graphic-based AI. Um, so it's really cool how Microsoft has made Copilot sort of a portal for a lot of different things related to AI, generative AI, as well as traditional search, as well as the graphical stuff, in the same way that Google, like 20 years ago or 25 years ago, made itself a portal for search engines, which was pretty unique at that time. So um, anyway, I think it's a great idea. I think it's got a lot of potential to change the way we interact and think, and in the tech industry in particular, you can use OpenAI, or, or I'm sorry, you can use uh, Copilot to help you write code, help you help you put together documentation and do some of those more mundane tasks that we used to have to do in the tech space and many of us are still doing. It'll it'll automate some of that, at least give us a starting point and do some of that heavy lifting for us. So that's just in the tech space, of course, in the, the arts and other parts of the world business, there's a whole host of use, use cases and, and potential usages of something like a co-pilot. So I think it's a, it's a pretty cool strategy. I'll be curious to see how Microsoft uh, fares competitively against Google and other AI providers over time. Yeah, totally. I think so too. Um, do you think that, so we see these big giant tech companies like Microsoft investing a lot of money, obviously, into AI. What do you think these smaller tech companies can do or can they compete even in this landscape of AI um, at all, do you think? I don't know. That's a great question. I mean, there's a lot of upstarts and startups that are focused on AI. Um, A lot of them have a lot of PE, you know, private equity or venture capital backing behind them. But it's hard to rival the reach and scale of a Microsoft or a Google or an Amazon. So I think they inherently have a huge advantage because of their not just their brand recognition and the 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 uh, existing consumer awareness of of those providers but also because just because of their size and scale and their access to data um it it just supports that ai model better you know you think about for example you think about amazon and amazon web services think of how many companies are hosting their applications on Amazon Web Services, and if they could take AI and use all that data, now I'm not. I'm going to set aside the legality of this for a moment, the confidentiality of this for a moment. This may not be feasible from a legal, privacy data privacy perspective, but if you could use AI to, um, or if you could use all that data from all your different customers that are hosting their enterprise applications on Amazon Web Services, and you could you build a complex AI models that take all that data into account and learn from all that data. Um, that's just that's really powerful, and a small upstart's just not going to have that access to broad sets of data that'll help make the AI models better. It's going to take them longer to get there, and they just don't have the brand awareness that these big tech providers have. So, I think, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, the the big tech providers have a distinct advantage here, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree with that. Let's move on to our next hot topic, which is about SAP and their new succession plan. Yeah. We found this hot topic from CIO.com, where they discuss SAP's recent announcement of the succession, their succession plan, which involves transitioning from co-CEOs, like the company has always seen, to now one sole leadership position in one CEO. This move marks a significant shift, obviously, in SAP's 
leadership leadership structure as it'll be the first time in several years, like I said, that they will have one single CEO. This decision to streamline leadership comes from various challenges facing the company, including declining profits and high executive turnover. Christian Klein, who currently serves as the co-CEO with Jennifer Morgan, will assume the solo role as CEO, while Jennifer Morgan will be stepping down from her position. The transition is expected to take place this April, um, while Klein will be taking full responsibility, leading SAP through its strategic initiatives and navigating the evolving technology landscape. This article also discusses the potential implications of this leadership change for SAP's future direction and growth trajectory. It also highlights the challenges that Klein might face in his new role, including addressing consumer concerns, driving innovation, and delivering value to its shareholders. Eric, what are your thoughts on this huge move that SAP announced and their decision to transition into a single CEO leadership structure? Well, a couple things on the surface are, you know, my knee-jerk reaction is I think it's generally a good thing to have a, a single CEO. Um, I know SAP has historically had the co-CEO role, and I think other European companies do that too. I think it's, it seems to be more common in Europe than other parts of the world. Um, so I understand there's there's probably some cultural considerations there and some uh, traditions in, in other parts of the world that I'm not used to, you know, being based in the U.S. Um, so that's one thing is I think generally – Generally speaking, if you have one CEO, you're going to have a more aligned organization because you've got one person that's ultimately, you know, the buck stops with that one person. There's not as much uh, uh, back and forth with decision making, and it, I think it speeds things up uh, for better or for worse. Now, if you're a bad CEO and you're making bad decisions, that could be a bad thing. But assuming you know what you're doing and you're a, a solid leader, it could be a, a good thing in terms of just providing that clarity to the organization and making decision making a little bit faster. Um, but on the flip side, I always have to wonder – you know, is this, I look at SAP's financial results lately and their stock price and all looks good on the surface. You know, I mean, I think their stock price recently hit an all time high and they're profitable. They're still a work in progress in getting their legacy customers and getting more customers onto the S4 HANA platform. They, they still have a long way to go there, but the good news is that's a lot of opportunity for them. But it does make me wonder if there's something under the surface that we're not seeing in financial results. Is there some turmoil or some concern, some strategic misdirection or misfire that's causing them to rethink how they've structured the company. I don't have an answer to that. I don't have any inside scoop uh, at this point as to if that might be the case. But anytime you've got a pretty significant change like that, you have to wonder, you know, what's really going on behind closed doors there. With the leadership change as well, do you think this will change strategic decision and ability to innovate the competitive tech industry with only one person, one person making those decisions? Well, I do because I think part of innovation is is moving fast. And you know, when you look at SAP's competitive position, they're they're the incumbent in the ERP software space, um, and they're the dominant player, right? And they, they've got a bullseye on them. Everyone's going after SAP. Everyone's trying to take market share away from SAP. So you know, they have to be able to play defense and, and move fast and move faster than their competitors. So I think it's a good thing. I think this will streamline their decision-making and just their overall direction. Um, but I, and I also think, you know, with AI changing as fast as it is and how much room SAP has to convert more of their customers onto S4 HANA, and not just S4 HANA, by the way, they're trying to get their customers onto the multi-tenant cloud, you know, the public cloud that's this, the 
um, the really high margin type business for them. So the good news, I think they've got all this opportunity and runway in front of them. They're already the dominant player in the space. Technology is changing really quickly. So I think maybe this is a way for them to move faster, you know, to make decisions faster. Now, of course, you do lose the in multiple points of view by not having two CEOs, but presumably you've still got a leadership team and an entire organization with tens of thousands of employees behind you and a lot of a lot of R&D dollars and things like that that should help, you know, compensate for any loss of any one person. Yeah, that makes sense. Where do you think their top, and you kind of answered this, but where do you think their top focus from now with one person making the decision should be at um, in order to like keep this influence that they currently have on the market? Well, I think if they can fast track their, uh, not only the adoption of S4 HANA, that's step one or, or a first step, uh, another you know, maybe second step, or maybe it's even a first step, is to uh, also in parallel um, increase the use of AI. You know, we talked about Microsoft a moment ago. SAP has an advantage because they've got the world's largest organizations using their technology. So if you can use AI in that same scale that a Microsoft or a Google or Amazon Web Services can, then that's that's something I would focus on. Um, and, you know, I do think, honestly, too, you know, the dark side of SAP is that I think they've lost a lot of goodwill and credibility and trust amongst their customer base because they're putting this deadline in place that a lot of customers aren't happy with. And a lot of it's creating a lot of turmoil and chaos in the in the industry. And it's benefiting SAP financially. But I think long term, it, it could potentially hurt them because you have customers who are sort of second guessing SAP's intentions and motives and saying, well, if you're going to force me to make a shift now, I might as well go out and look at Oracle or Microsoft Dynamics or whatever. Um, so for the most part, I think most customers that are already on SAP are just going to go to S4 HANA. But um, I think longer term, I'll be curious to see you know, how, how customers respond to that, that sort of gun being held to their head saying you need to move to S4 HANA now. Um, so we'll, we'll see. I don't have a good answer for you, but that would be, those would be some of the areas I would, I would focus on is you know, AI, getting more people to convert to S4 HANA, and also maybe cleaning up some of the credibility damage that's been caused by the, the forced migrations to, to S4 HANA. Yeah, definitely makes sense. That's, that's super awesome for, those are our hot topics for um, this week, so. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for bringing those up. And that, that a lot of that ties into, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about AI, and one of the big considerations for AI, or one of the big important inputs for AI is going to be the data you have as an organization. So we're going to shift gears, and when we come back, we're going to we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back, and we're going to talk about data management and data retention. And, and as, as boring as it sounds, we're going to do our best to make it – I shouldn't say as boring as it sounds. As boring as it sounds to me, um, I'm going to try to make it entertaining for myself, and hopefully if it entertains me, it'll entertain the audience too. Uh, but we have a great guest who will help make it entertaining, and that's uh, Chad Baker. He's the – CEO of LAE Software. He's going to be on the show talking about some of the considerations and trade-offs as it relates to data management, data retention. And this is obviously an important input into AI and predictive analytics and business intelligence and things of that nature. It's also important as you go through a digital transformation to make sure you address the data piece of it, figuring out how much data you keep, how much data you do move over to the new systems, how much data do you destroy if, if applicable. You know, those are all policy decisions that are difficult for organizations to make. So we're going to talk about some of those trade-offs and Darian, you're going to help uh, facilitate some, uh, some not a debate, but sort of a back and forth between Chad and I taking different points of view to show what some of those trade-offs are. So we're going to have a, a great conversation to dive into that in more detail. Uh, we'll have Chad on the show here in just a moment. Then later after Chad's on the show, we'll also get into the tech skills shortage, not just in the ERP space, but in technology in general. 
what that means to your digital transformation and what it means to your career too. So we'll get to that later. So be sure to stick around. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Controls. My name is Eric Kimberling and I'm the CEO and founder of Third Stage Consulting. Before we dive too far into today's content, I want to invite you to learn a little bit more about Third Stage Consulting, who we are and what we do. I've included a link to a video right here that describes Third Stage in a bit more detail. It talks about our story, our history, our philosophy, our clients, our service offerings, and that sort of thing. But in general, what Third Stage Consulting does is we're an independent and tech agnostic consulting provider. We help clients through their entire digital transformation life cycles, beginning with digital strategy, software evaluation and selection, all the way through and including implementation planning, implementation readiness, and the actual implementation itself. We're technology agnostic, so we only represent our clients' best interests. We do not represent software vendors. But having said that, we work very closely with software vendors, all the leading players that you can imagine we've worked with, both in helping clients evaluate and select them, but also in helping clients implement those solutions as well. So we have a very broad, objective, agnostic view of the market that is meant to really represent your interest as you go through your digital transformation. I also encourage you to scan this QR code right here to get access to our resource center. This resource center has a ton of information, ton of eBooks that are free. You have access to top 10 software rankings, playbooks for how to make your project more successful, guides to change management, YouTube videos, all kinds of stuff that are gonna help you through your digital transformation. So I encourage you to scan this QR code to get access to those resources. And please feel free to reach out to me directly to brainstorm ideas about your project. Even if it's just informally, you want to bounce around some ideas and get some informal advice, I'd be happy to spend some time with you. So feel free to reach out to me. I've included my contact information below. You can also find it in the description field of this video as well. Transformation Ground Control, episode number 159. My name is Eric Kimberling here at Darian Fiatkowski. Um, you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of transformation. Um, the show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that helps clients reach their third stage of digital transformation success. It's a company I'm the CEO of, too, not coincidentally. Um, we help clients with digital strategy, software selection, as well as implementation, including program management and change management. So be sure to uh, check us out at thirdstage-consulting.com. And this podcast is produced by Major Tom Productions. So I'm excited to have our next guest on. He's been on the show before a couple times now. He's spoken at our digital stratosphere events in the past. Uh, he's someone I know very well in the tech space and as a friend, too. Um, he's Chad Baker, who's the CEO and founder of LAE Software. I'm going to let him describe what LAE Software does here in just a moment. But we want to have him on the show to talk about data management, data retention within digital transformation. Uh, data management is oftentimes a uh, afterthought during digital transformation. A lot of times organizations and project teams focus so much on business process, process and technologies and integration of technologies and then forget about the data piece of it or save the data piece of it till later. And that's a mistake, as we're going to talk about here in just a moment. But more importantly, figuring out what your data management policies are, your data retention policies are. There's a lot of trade-offs and competing, conflicting priorities that need to be considered. And this is especially important in today's day and age with AI, as we've talked about throughout this episode, artificial intelligence and business intelligence, analytics. It's all dependent on good data. So you, making sure you have enough data, clean enough data, that sort of thing is very important. 
At the same time, though, you've got cybersecurity concerns that you've got to work through. You've got data privacy concerns and regulations you've got to work through. So there's a lot of competing priorities and perspectives you've got to think about, and that's what we want to uh, dive into here today. Last thing I'll say, too, data is one of those uh, un mis misunderstood or underestimated assets that an organization has. It doesn't show up on your balance sheet. It's hard to value it, but it is of immense value to an organization to have good data. So data management, data retention is really important, especially uh, more so than ever now. So with that all being said, to talk more about this topic, uh, Chad, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Eric. Thank you. It's good to good to see you again. And uh, you you uh, do a lot in, and have a lot of background in data management, data retention, which we're going to get to here in just a moment. But before we jump in, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and what LAE Software does. Yeah, so I'm the, the founder of LAE Software. And what we do is we try to write um, software that is automated, um, really to make IT admins jobs easier because that's where we come from. So that's actually in the name. So a lot of people are curious what the LEE part of LEE software is. Um, it comes from actually uh, Microsoft exams in the early 2000s, kind of date myself, of course, but um, <laughs> they, uh, they would always start with, the, the question would start and say, it would say with least administrative effort, so LEE, what is the right way to answer this question? So really what it was saying is there's multiple ways to solve a problem, but what is the way that's going to be the most efficient? That kind of stuck with me and that became kind of the, the uh, it's kind of our mission statement and company name as we're trying to make things easier for admins. Right. Yeah. And so you guys do development of all, all kinds of different types of software solutions. Is that right? Correct. And we have one, um, one main product right now that, uh, it goes out and automatically finds uh, Microsoft Outlook PST data, which is basically a mailbox in a file. Um, so a lot of companies been around for a long time, have a bunch of these out on their network. So um, our software goes out, finds all those, migrates all the data up to Microsoft's cloud, and then gets rid of the uh, PSTs all, all automated so nobody has to do it manually. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, speaking of data, data retention, that's, a, <laughs> that's for a lot of organizations, emails and just the hoarding of emails over time and over decades. Uh, I imagine that that can be a pretty complex process of migrating that all um, over time. That's very true. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, so what we'll talk about today is is all types of data. So we're, we're really gonna dive into um, within data management in the whole realm of data management, talking about data retention and data retention policies and how to how to define the right balance between data retention, as well as um, cybersecurity concerns, as well as, you know, when you look at some of these emerging technologies where data is really important, you sort of have competing priorities, um, potentially, or trade-offs that you need to make as it relates to those those three things. And so just in general, you know, how would you describe, just to set the context for the audience here mm -hmm. today, especially for those that aren't that techie or maybe aren't data management experts by any means, um, what exactly is data retention? Like, how would you summarize it or simplify it for a layperson? Yeah, so for the uh, kind of the Ask AI kind of definition, you know, it's going to tell you that it's the deliberate systematic way in which you store, use, and delete data. Um, so that's kind of the, the definition, but what does that really mean? What I like to do is kind of um, use the, the house analogy, right? It's um, so data, so like you have a house and data is like your stuff. So some is more valuable than others. Some of it you're going to keep into a safe, right? So you're, that's your controls. You're going to keep it in safe. You're going to have a combination. Only certain people know it, right? For the most valuable things. Um, some things are, are less valuable. 
so those are going to be things that you might leave in the yard even right like uh or leave down on the ground that it's okay if your dogs grab and take outside right um, <laughs> um yeah. some things are valuable to you but maybe not necessarily other people so like pictures that type of thing um and then you have also your own systematic ways of getting rid of that data too right you you throw stuff into the trash can. It sits in the trash can until it's full. And then you take that trash can and then you take it outside and you throw it in the trash can. And then the next week, the trash company comes and gets it. So everybody kind of has their own kind of valuable um, retention policies within kind of their personal lives. And it's kind of similar within within uh, data retention. Right. And uh, I'll, I'll have to admit, I'm a bit of a hoarder at times. You know, I save, <laughs> I save stuff, not just mm -hmm. data, but you know, at home, I don't like to throw stuff away. I want to make sure I get my money's worth and uh, I'll hang on to stuff that I shouldn't. And uh, so you have different, I can imagine you have a lot of people within organizations that are hoarding data, you know, hoarding the emails, hoarding the stuff that they feel like they might need. Um, but then you might have, is it, do you see the dynamic where you have other extremes where maybe people are careless about the data or they don't care about the data and they, they're too quick to get rid of stuff that might be important to the, to the organization? Yeah. So you have, um, you have the problem both ways. Uh, the the hoarding side, especially within with data, is um, it's even worse because that trash can that you have it's huge, right? So like you can put data, um, you can keep stuff and data away, and you don't even see it. it's not sitting on your desk right in your face, right? You kind of just put it yeah. away, and it goes wherever it goes, right? Um, but yeah, the, the same the same thing is on the the careless side of it too. So not only is data retention about, you know, like how you're going to store it, what you're, how you're going to shuffle it around. It's also how you're going to protect it. So if it's um, extremely important data, you want to make sure that it's protected from um, accidental deletion, um, purposeful deletion, like say a, like a ransomware attack. Um, so that all those things kind of come into your data retention policy. Yeah. Well, and it's always interesting to see how much data an organization has. You mentioned, you know, emails, pictures, things of that nature. Mm. And with enterprise technologies and sort of this whole movement towards computerization, digitization and automation, all the stuff we've been going through the last few decades, you have all these organizations that have been gathering and collecting data since maybe the late 60s or the 70s, back when they put in their first, you know, big computer systems or whatever the case may be. So it's interesting to see like how over time organizations build up this big asset um, that can be valuable over time, but can also create a lot of problems and challenges, cybersecurity risks, um, things of that nature. Um, yeah. So, so having, you know, kind of work in corporate IT for a, a long time um, prior to starting the software company, um, uh, lots of times people would say, well, legal is going to set our data retention ball. Legal's handling that. Legal's doing this, right? But the... The, the truth is there's a lot more to it. Um, and so I think that's why I think this kind of discussion and debate kind of show how much um, people have kind of a say in what we should be doing with our data retention policy. Right, right. Um, and just a few other things to kind of throw in there about like what are, you know, like some of, just give you an idea of all the things you need to put into consider within your data retention policy. You have to determine, you know, like what type of data you want to be active to where people can get to it easily or semi-easily. And then what is going to be backup um, when you're talking about disaster recovery, you have to determine um, your, you might hear the terms RPO and RTO. Mm -hmm. So what those are is your recovery point objective, which is the RPO, is at what point do I need to be able to go back to? 
So like how much data am I going to keep or how fast am I going to um, protect that data? So if it was deleted, I could get back to it. Um, and then RTO is how long is it going to take you to get back to it? So those, right. those are important because those set quite a bit of your strategy and um, what you're doing for disaster recovery. And then you also have to consider your industry, um, regulatory compli compliance, which usually ties in with the industry, um, your company's risk tolerance, and then also whether or not you're going to allow exceptions to the policy. So it's almost how stringent you're going to be with that policy as well. Yeah. Yeah, and later we're going to get into some of the different perspectives. You know, what are the different perspectives and, and angles that you might consider your data management, data retention policies? Um, you mentioned legal being one, but you've got other perspectives, obviously, that you need to consider within the organizations. So we'll come back to that um, and dive into that a little bit more detail. But before uh, we keep going, I just want to uh, turn to the audience real quickly here and thank everyone who dropped in the chat where you're joining from today. We've got people all over the world ranging from Wichita, Kansas to London, Kansas City, Missouri, London, UK, um, London, UK, again, Holland, Michigan, Kansas City, a lot of Kansas City people. Is it, is it because of the Chiefs just won the Super Bowl and they're just they're out, they're out trolling the Internet, apparently? They're still awake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. They haven't gone to bed since the Super Bowl. Right. And they're here just to troll all the 49ers fans that might be on this on the stream. Um, <laughs> Centennial, Colorado, London, Ontario, Athens, Greece. So thanks, everyone, for for being here today. And, and uh, thank you for joining. Um, and again, if you have questions as it relates to data management, data retention, please uh, drop it in the chat as we go here. Um, so I, you sort of alluded to this, but maybe we can ask it more directly and dive into it a bit more detail. But why is data retention so important and why do you need a policy around it? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, a lot of people are wondering, should I have a policy for uh, data retention? Um and I think kind of the reality is if you're not defining a policy, you are defining a policy, you know, like the, you know, choosing to do nothing, um, you're choosing to do nothing. So by doing that, you're saying, I'm going to keep all this data. So if that data is risky, so um, I'll use kind of just one quick example, like uh, healthcare. So within healthcare, it's highly regulated. <laughs> so it's highly, it's, you know, like if it's a public company, it's regulated as well. So if there um, is something damaging in that data to the company, um, it can be discovered. So if you don't have a policy for how you're going to protect it, how you're going to delete it, then it could um, hurt you like in a legal case. Um, so get back to um by choosing to do nothing, you're setting a policy. So you're setting, what you're saying is I'm going to keep all my data. The users are going to be responsible for um, deleting or keeping whatever data they want. Um, and then I am accepting all of the risks that are associated and all the costs that are associated um, that goes with it. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, you're right. I mean, that's another consideration we haven't really gotten to is cost. Um, you know, we'll get into, you know, IT performance or the performance of technology and applications and the ability to process the data you have, um, the human impact. There's a lot of different things we will we'll get into here. We're here with Chad Baker from LAE Software talking about data management, data retention policies within digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, 
experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 159. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Darian Fiakuski. Uh, you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. Um, we're here with Chad Baker from LAE Software talking about data management and data retention in digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. For organizations that are going through some sort of uh, digital transformation or some sort of IT change initiative, which a lot of organizations are, and certainly a lot of people listening to this podcast are. Um, how does it? How does a data retention policy factor in, or how should you consider data retention when you're going through a transformation? Because a lot of times, data gets treated as more of an afterthought. Like we're we're focused on applications, we're focused on upgrading our infrastructure, or whatever it is, or moving to the cloud, all that stuff. But then data sort of is like, oh yeah, we need to get the data over here too while we're at it. So how do you? How do you reprioritize that or how do you navigate that or what, what are some tips you have for people that are trying to figure out how to manage data retention, but also at the same time, they're going through a systems upgrade or whatever the change may be? Yeah. So if a, if a policy exists, um, then, you know, might, as you're going through digital transformation, it might be a good time to review that policy. So almost kind of go back and review all of the reasons you have the policy that you have. Um, so first start with your data classification. So like looking at all the different types of data you have, determining what is more valuable, what's the things you want to put in the safe, what's the things you want to leave in the ark, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so kind of reviewing that so that way, um, and, you know, I think in, in business, everything kind of boils down to cost at some point, right? So the, the, the cost it's going to take to secure that data, um, the cost of storage, being able to store it somewhere, right? Being able to back it up. Um, all of those things are going to impact the project and you have to plan those out accordingly. Um, so if you're, if you're doing a big digital transformation, that's also one of the times that where you've got a lot of duplication of data. So as you're migrating systems, you're copying some data over. So you're like, maybe you're switching an ERP system. You gotta, you gotta get all your data from the old one, either migrated into the new one, or you're going to run two systems at the same time. Well, now you just, doubled your things to manage, right? Because you've got all the systems related to your old system. You've got all the systems related to your new system. You've got double the storage. Um, you've got different access maybe to old systems. Um, so I would say during a digital transformation, it's almost good just to kind of start from the beginning and kind of just review the policy, see if everything still makes sense and make changes before you go through that, that large initiative. Yeah. Yeah, and you want to make sure you're not waiting until, you know, you're doing the the uh, the the testing cycles. You know, a lot of times organizations wait till like the last round of of integration testing or user acceptance testing, and then they load a bunch of data to to start to test and and work with the data. Then, but 
uh, if you wait till then, it's it's usually too late or you're going to make some bad decisions or cut some corners as it relates to data. So, you know, not just for data retention, but just data management in general, data migration. It's it's always important to start that work stream a lot earlier than you probably think. Mm-hmm. Um, what about, you know, is it realistic for organizations just to have policies just to keep all their data? I mean, is that is that a realistic thing or, or why wouldn't you do that? Uh, that is a realistic thing. Um, so the uh, kind of a, a good example of that is uh, I worked for a, a mortgage company around the, the 2008 kind of mortgage crisis, right? And the um, with it with for so for mortgage, it could be 30 years, right? Right. And you, you need to keep the data that you have for for 30 years. And the company I worked for would originate the loans. So what they would do is they'd collect all the data from their customers, right? Um, and then they would look, they would do their determination on whether or not they could get the loan. Um, and the, the kind of the 2008 mortgage crisis was around people who wrote some bad loans, people that couldn't pay for their loan. They ran into trouble. They walked away from the loan and, um, within mortgage, what they do is they, they sell them together. So they do like groups of loans and they call mortgage backed securities. Hmm. So you put a bunch of loans together, they sell them to investors. Well, the investors in 2008 were like, hey, wait a minute, all these people that originated these loans, they're the ones who screwed up. They're the ones liable. So we're going to basically sue them to get our money back. So mm. the mortgage company I worked for kept all their data. <laughs> so they had they had all that data. So when they came back and said, hey, you need to buy back this loan because you guys made a mistake, the, the company was able to, to go back and say, nope, here's what we did. Here's what we had. We did everything right. You have to stick with that. And so... Um, Keeping all your data is very helpful uh, for some companies. Depends on the industry and yeah, yeah. Whether yeah, and I'd be do curious. the right things in mortgage. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, mortgage is a great example of a, of kind of a long term data mm-hmm. need that it, that's highly regulated as well. Um, and I'm going to come back to the regulation point here in just a second with an audience question. But yeah, um, one now I lost my train of thought. What was I going to ask you? Um, oh, as you're going through. Um, you know, as you're going through this, I'd love to hear from the audience what, um, you, you know, if your organization has a data retention policy, or if you don't know, maybe just let us know you don't know if you have one or not. I'm curious to know if, you know, does your organization have a data retention policy? Are you are you aware of it? Love to hear the audience's feedback here. Yeah. Um, and speaking of audience feedback, speaking of regulation, here's a, mm-hmm. a question from YouTube, and that is, is there a legal regulation in the USA and EU for data retention? Like for how many years you have to keep data? Is that typically regulate is it vary by industry how would you how would you answer that chad yeah i would say it's it varies by industry it also there's there's quite a bit of different factors so like healthcare is um everything has to comply with the, the hipaa which is the health information and protection and portability act um so hipaa for healthcare um one of the other um things to watch out for is within the the U.S. is taxes, right? So the Internal Revenue Service, um, you, most companies will keep like uh, seven years of data just so um, they're able to, um, if because that's what you could be audited back to for IRS. So you'll see a lot of companies start at seven years just for the, the IRS reason. Right. Here here in the U.S., the IRS is our, our tax authority <laughs> in every country. And here's, here's a comment from, uh, whoops. Here's a comment from uh, LinkedIn. I don't see who who made the comment, but it it varies by uh, type of data and country. So um, that that's a great, a valid, definitely a valid point. Um, 
Here's a, a question I want to get to, Chad, because I think it's a great one. This is from uh, YouTube as well. Um, Eric, you stated most implementation data is afterthought, is an afterthought and priority. What do you suggest in new implementations, how to address this issue while data is updated all the time? So it's, it's a great point because data is a moving target. You're always new transactional data, even new master data, new emails, spreadsheets that are being updated, all that stuff. How do you, how do you navigate that or what are your thoughts around that, Chad? Yeah, so the um, if you look at it from the, the user perspective, they want to keep everything. Like, right. um, so a good example is I've talked to people who are like, uh, um, they're trying to remember, I, I do this too. You know, like I'm, I'm probably one of the, the, the worst offenders of keeping all my email data. Um, Cause I'm always like, yeah, I'm like, uh, so if you're working on something and you, you know, like kind of like an old partner comes back into the mix or something like that, and you're like, Oh, that partner, what did we work on together? Um, what was the last thing we did? What was their phone number? All of those things. You're able to go back, search for your email and say, Oh, here's the last interaction I had with them. Here is their phone number. Here's the last thing we worked on. Um, so kind of getting back to the importance is a lot of people want to keep their data. So when you're talking about a project team who's doing an ERP implementation, that that's not necessarily a battle that you want to fight, right? Like, um, so you're going to have strict project timelines, right? You're going to, you're, you've got to get this implementation done within whatever time that you have for your um, for your project. And if you, and for people who have tried to implement a change to a data retention policy, um, they've got a lot of scars and bruises. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, a, a good example is uh, at that mortgage company, actually, we tried to implement a policy that said anything that was in the deleted items of email could actually be deleted and go away. And mm. like based on 30 days, because there's, um, Microsoft Exchange makes it real easy with policies where you can set a policy and then that policy is going to do exactly what you told it to do. And we were trying to just set it to say anything older than 30 days and the deleted items, we're going to actually get rid of that. It's not just going to sit in that folder anymore. Um, but we got beat up pretty bad from that. So if you're mm -hmm. trying to do a digital transformation and um, you're looking at timelines, it, you know, like is that once you try to fight, for changes in the policy, you might get beat up and might slow down your project. So I think a lot of people end up skipping it, but it's mm. it can save the company um, on risk and money if you do that ahead of time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's well, well said, and that's a great point. I mean, a lot of times companies just take the path of least resistance and say, yeah, we don't want to get beat up on that 30-day deletion policy example that you just gave, so we're just going to keep it the way it is, even if it's not ideal or not the right, the right answer longer term. Right. Um, so we talked a lot about legal considerations. We've talked a little bit about maybe from the end user or employee perspective, but maybe help us understand what are the different perspectives we have to think about um, across the board as it relates to data retention policies. Yeah. So for the, um, so I'll start kind of with like the operations of a lot of organizations yeah. and it varies a little bit by industry. So, um, you know, using the, you know, some, things are valuable, right? For businesses, data is extremely valuable. And for a, um, so I could use the mortgage example for a financial company, um, for a marketing company, that data is extremely important because they're able to keep track of um, their customers. So like say their preferences, their contact information, 
Um, healthcare, highly regulated. It's important for them to make sure they've got the right policies to clean that up. Um, but within, I think every organization, each department kind of has different requirements as well. Mm. So um, human resources, right? They're the ones who have to deal with if there is um, like an employee and employee conflict, they get called in in, mm. in legal battles, right? So right. the the data that is available could either help them or harm them. So they've got a lot of information that they want to add to kind of the data retention policy. Um, you've got the end users this is a good, you know, like we talked about the, they want to keep everything cause it can help them. Right. They, right. they don't know that some of them might actually hurt the company. Um, you've got the, like within the it organization, you have the, the CISO. So the chief information security officer who they have like, so, um, using the house analogy, if you've got a ton of data, you're gonna have to make your house bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, that's a lot more to manage. So for people who are doing the securing of the data, the more data you have, the more things you have to do to make sure you're securing it properly and make sure you have the right access. Um, and then um, customers, you know, like they, they actually have a say in your data retention policy as well. And you're starting to see that more and more, which translates to regulatory um, because like, so, uh, like example, I think a lot of people have seen is a company takes your credit card information, right? In order to, for you to purchase something from them. And then if they don't, um, if they get breached and that data gets out into the open, then now they've affected their customers, which affects, you know, their, um, how the customer sees them and whether or not they want to buy from them. And if, if you're keeping all the data, then you know, you may have customers that come in and out. Target's a good example. who got breached, right, with credit yeah. card data. Yeah. So they have customers coming in and out all the time. So if you're cleaning up some of that data, get rid of it, then your impact's much less. So say they were cleaning up their data and only half of the credit cards got lost, then they only have to, then you're only really impacting half of the customers. Um, I was just looking on my list here to see if there was any other ones on um, project teams. We talked about that a little bit because yeah. um, what your data retention policy is doing can, can affect projects. Um, and then the one that's probably most uh, near and dear to my heart being from uh, IT is uh, your data retention policy determines um, how IT architects their systems. Mm. So for somebody who keeps all their data, um, you know, if that's, kind of the best strategy for the company, that's fine. But you have to realize that IT now has to then buy the storage to be able to, to hang on to that or use your pay in per the, per the gig if you're using a cloud service. And then you also have to put in the systems to protect that data, to be able to recover it. The more data you have, the longer it takes to recover. Um, so that policy has, you know, kind of that, um, there's a lot of a, uh, cascading implications just from what you're determining what you want to do with the policy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We're here with Chad Baker from LAE Software talking about data management, data retention policies within digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. I'm excited to share our newly released 
2024 Digital Enterprise Operations Report. This free download is available on the Third Stage website at thirdstage-consulting.com. This report is truly packed full of technology independent and agnostic insights for your project to ensure that you're strategically optimized for success. Download your copy today with the QR code in front of me or visit our website for more details. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 159. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Darian Fiakuski. Uh, you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. Um, we're here with Chad Baker from LAE Software talking about data management and data retention in digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. And uh, this is from uh, an attendee on uh, YouTube. He says, or he or she says, uh, Melbourne, Australia here. Yes, security, OHS, finance, FMIT, just a few groups that don't even know or agree on how they classify data, let alone retain it. So um, that, that's from Do Ya Reckon uh, on, uh, is the handle on, on YouTube. So thanks for the, the comment. Um, so I've got one more question, Chad, before we sort of shift gears, okay. bring on our, our third guest here to help us moderate the next part of the discussion. But um, we've talked a bit about this in passing, we sort of danced around this whole idea of data privacy and data security. And I talked about at the beginning of the discussion, how those are con conflicting priorities. Like, I, like you just sort of pointed out a few of the conflicting priorities as a user, I want to keep everything right. That that's easiest for me. There's mm -hmm. no skin off my back. That's IT's problem to figure out how to figure out storage and the cost of it and all that stuff you just mentioned. But of course, IT does care because they're the ones that have to deal with the budget and the cost and the headache of, of preserving all that. So there's a lot of conflicts here in conflicting priorities within an organization. But when you look at data privacy, data security, those are two other potential conflicting priorities too. How would you how would you unpack that? Yeah. So the you know, trying to boil it down to the the business language of dollars and cents, right? Mm -hmm. Um the uh you can debate whether or not these are accurate, but there's um like the Ponymon Institute comes up with a a um, cost per record. So they're using that based on the averages of what companies had to pay when they were breached. Um, so they're, they're saying, well, you're for your industry, which is very important, your cost per record can vary. And so like if you were to get breached and say one record got out, that's basically what they're saying. So if yeah. one record, so that record could be um, Eric's email to us that had his social security numbers, address, and his phone number. So that one record would cost the company this amount of dollars. So for healthcare, that's $402. Hmm. For financial, that's $264. So the, the healthcare information is costs more if you were to get breached. So a security person wants to um, have less of that data <laughs> right <laughs> um as opposed to one that has the, the the lower cost per record but um so your data retention policy is kind of drives the how you're going to secure that data so if i've got a um i'm keeping information for marketing for reasons so like maybe like an amazon as an example right um I come in, I put in my address, my credit card information. If they were to get rid of that information right away, then the security team wouldn't care about having to 
protect that data from other people getting into it because yeah. it's gone, right? They probably love um, it. They'd be like, that's a great idea. Just get rid of it. That's a great idea. <laughs> if you don't have any data, then we don't have to worry about it getting breached, right? Right. <laughs> get bad for the business, but good for the 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 security group because they don't have to they don't have as much to do to secure it. So um, I think they they have the perspective of um, wanting to have less data in there or at least the data that's damaging, right? So some of the things you can do is you can look for uh, like within the United States, a lot of people have the, the social security numbers stored within mm. databases. So something as simple as our data retention policy is maybe we're going to keep all of this data about our customers, but what we're going to do is we're just going to go through and all the social security number data, we're just going to blank that out because right. we don't need that anymore. We did that to get their credit report, but now we don't need it. So let's just get rid of that. So then we're not, um, we're not at risk of that data getting out. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. And you look at the target breach or, you know, any of these big global corporations that have had breaches where consumer data has been stolen, like credit card information, social security numbers, things of that nature. It'd be easy to look at that use case and say, well, they should have just not kept that data. But of course, if you're a retailer and you're concerned about customer experience and, you know, making it easy to purchase and you want to drive revenue, things of that nature, obviously it doesn't make sense to get rid of that data from a from a revenue generation perspective. So you really have to kind of balance those. And do you see organizations struggle to balance these conflicting priorities? I mean, ultimately who decides? I mean, how do you, yeah. how do you see organizations resolve this? And I, that's one of the things I think that that I've seen is that it's not everybody coming in collaboratively and uh, going All through agreed. and saying, hey, here, here's what I think we should do. Here's what I think we should do. Here's what I think we should do. What they're doing is they're leaving it up to either one group or one person to say, here's what our policy is. Now you guys have to, you have to implement it. You know, like they don't have any, they're not thinking about like, well, I'm, that person needs to add two headcounts. They need to add a million dollars to their IT budget. You know, they're not thinking about those types of things. Um, they're just, most of the time they're saying legal is deciding that. Right. Which when you when you are regulated, I think that is the the very first thing you have to look at because that is that is extremely important. But it's not um, that policy doesn't need to apply to all the data. Right. It's only applies to the data that's tied to that regulation. Um, right. So I think having more collaboration within the um, designing of a data retention policy would be a good thing for organizations. Yeah. Yeah, makes total sense. Um, and I'm still curious if anyone has comments on whether your organization has a data retention policy. And if so, are you familiar with it? I'm curious to hear your feedback uh, in the chat. So please drop that in. While you're doing that, though, we are going to shift gears a bit. Are you ready to do more of a, we'll sort of dive into some specific examples, Chad? Does that, uh, does that work for you to Sounds make that great. transition now? So to help us moderate this discussion, I'm going to bring on um, Darian, uh, Darian Fikuski. Um, who's a first-time uh, attendee or first-time guest on our podcast. So, uh, hello, Darren. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. It's your first time on the podcast. Are you nervous? No. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll try our best to make you nervous as we go through this. <laughs> no, but uh, what, the reason we want to have Darian on the show is we thought it might be kind of fun, Chad, to take what we've talked about so far conceptually and put together – we've put together some specific use cases – and examples of things to consider and what some of these trade-offs are. And, and we're gonna, you and I are gonna sort of take some different counterpoints and different perspectives from different stakeholders within an organization to show how 
it's not an easy answer. And you and I, if we have different perspectives or coming at it from different departments or whatever, you and I are going to have different priorities and different um, opinions on what a data retention policy is. So we thought it would be fun to, to dive into that. So Darian, with that being said, why don't you dive in and, and sort of tell us what the scenarios and perspectives are, and then Chad and I will give our, our knee-jerk reactions to that. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so audience, if you guys want to comment during the discussion and say who you maybe agree with or what perspective you agree with more, that'd be awesome to hear what you guys are thinking. Um, first of all, Eric, your perspective will be on the legal side, and Chad, your perspective will be coming from the IT side. The industry for this one is healthcare, and then IT is going to be implementing this policy. And the policy is from zero to seven years, you're keeping it. Um, seven to 10 years, you back it up. And if it's over 10 years, you're going to delete it. So Eric, what are your thoughts on the legal side? This is healthcare. Um, I'm going to say I don't like it. Um, because I don't think we're keeping enough of that data because I'm concerned if there's any sort of litigation over time or long-term um, outcome effect of, of the healthcare we've provided, um, we wouldn't have the data to necessarily defend us if we needed it or, or to back us um, from, a, from a legal perspective. So I'd say that policy does not work for us from a, from a legal perspective. Okay. And Chad, what are your thoughts? So the um, it's close, but... Um, I actually think we're keeping too much of that data. Um, so I think we're in agreement that it's the, you know, maybe not the right policy, but um, your perspective is that you want to keep more of the data because you're, you're legal, right? Um, me being IT, I know what happens the last time I came to the CIO and asked for more budget for more storage. Um, and they said, well, isn't, can't we clean anything up? It's like, well, we can't because the policy says that we got to keep at least seven years of this stuff. Um, so I think we're, we're a little, a little bit on the, uh, we're both agreeing that we don't like seven years, but it's, um, I like it because I think it's too, I, I don't like it because I think it's too long. Eric doesn't like it because he thinks it's too short. <laughs> yeah. And I guess, um, you know, if I thought that was long enough and I guess it's objective too, right? It is, is, is uh, seven years, is that, a, is that a reasonable cutoff? Is that too long, too short? Um, you know, you could easily make an argument that that's good from that perspective, but yeah, I think I think it's every it's it's already we're seeing that it's a it's a it's a definitely a gray area for sure. And uh, one of the other things too is like as as IT having it, um, we're the ones that are responsible for implementing, which happens with a lot of companies. Um, having something that says we need to now delete anything older than ten years means that I've got to go through put all the systems in place to go out and actually delete that data to to go in line with the policy. And I also have to deal with the customer um, end customer, which would be the end users, right? Response when I actually start deleting that data. Right. Quick comment from LinkedIn. Um, yeah. Delete should not be an option for healthcare. Um, so that's a interesting <laughs> point. I, I don't know if that's any regulatory, there's probably regulatory bodies throughout the world that might agree with you on that and might in fact have some laws that say you can't delete. I'm not, I'm not familiar with them if they are, but uh, that could be the case. So great point. Yeah, I'd be curious if that, um, you know, delete shouldn't be an option if that's um, somebody who actually works in the industry. And, you know, that's kind of their perspective from being at that company, or if it's the the customer perspective. Right. Right. Just another beef, not to hijack your, your conversation here, Darian, but this is from uh, Eric. Eric on YouTube says, I work for a government contractor. Our data retention policies are defined by our government customers and clearly stated in our contracts. 
So in some ways, you know, that, you know, his situation might be a little bit easier because there's not that gray area. I mean, whether it's good or bad, probably doesn't matter a whole lot if your government contract or if your contract with um, your customers tell you what you, you can and can't do from a data perspective. That's quite a bit to manage though, too, right? Like, yeah. Cause the, the more, the more differences you have in your policy, so the more complex it is. So like, that's kind of like what we're talking about is like a policy that we're saying, this is kind of the general idea, right? When you yeah. get into the, the details of it, like different types of data, so how you classify it, this type of data might be different than that type of data. Now, you, when you're talking about dealing with uh, different customers who have different policies, so now you've got to be able to apply that policy specific to that customer, which is going to add a lot more complexity, which is probably adds a lot more cost as well. Yeah, it's a great point. That's why you don't want me in charge of your data policies because I, I I didn't think of that perspective. So <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> and and you know being in the United States and have government who uh, has increasing costs, maybe they should come together on a policy that's one policy for the government agencies. So that way, you don't have to have different policies for each government customer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, makes total sense. Yeah. Totally. Um, okay. So for the next perspective, we're just going to shift perspectives, but keep the same plan. So healthcare is still the industry IT is still implementing, and then it's the same data retention program still. So the zero to seven years, you're keeping it, um, seven to 10, you're backing it up and then greater than 10, you're deleting it. The perspectives this time, Eric, you're the CISO and Chad, you're going to be the CEO. Um, Eric, what are your thoughts? Well, if I'm the CISO um, and I'm in this highly regulated industry called healthcare, and for example, in the U.S., we've got these HIPAA rules that Chad mentioned before, where um, you, you know they're pretty pretty uh, stringent on not revealing any sort of uh, customer or patient information. Um, this policy makes me nervous, and I don't like it because we're keeping so much of it that it's just more we're more exposed uh, by keeping data for that long. So, I, from my perspective as CISO. Chief Information Security Officer, by the way, in case you weren't familiar with that acronym, um, I would say it's a bad policy or one that I don't like. Yeah. Chad, how about you? What do you think about for the CEO? From So from the CEO's perspective, um, healthcare companies can make a lot of money off that data. So they can um, anonymize it. They can sell it off for market research. They can work with drug companies to help identify candidates for um, studies. Um, so I can make a lot of money off of having all this data out there. So from the CEO's perspective, I kind of kind of like it. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting, like that. We're here with Chad Baker from LAE Software talking about data management, data retention policies within digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. 
Transformation Ground Control, episode number 159. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Darian Fiakuski. Uh, you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. Um, we're here with Chad Baker from LAE Software talking about data management and data retention in digital transformation. Let's jump back into the conversation. So for the next perspective, um, an audience keep commenting of who you agree with and what your thoughts are as well. For the next perspective, Eric, you're going to be operations and um, Chad, you're going to be HR. Um, Chad, what are your thoughts on the HR side of this policy? Yeah, so from the HR side, I, I want as little data as possible working in healthcare because within healthcare, you have a ton of people. So for um, so I, I'm trying to limit down the amount of things that I have to take care of. And if I've got a lot of people and then I've got a lot of interactions between employee and employee. Um, I want to limit the amount of data that could come back and hurt the company in a, a lawsuit. Yeah, totally. Makes sense. And Eric, what are your thoughts on the operations side? Well, I like it from an operations perspective because we are keeping a, a, a fair amount of data over a, a good amount of time and I can make better decisions. I, I have everything I need. I, there's no questions that I need to go back and uh, recreate through tribal knowledge. Um, so I, I like it from an operations perspective. Yeah, makes sense. Um, for the last perspective of this program, so it's still the healthcare and the IT implementation with the same data retention program. Chad, you're going to take from the sales marketing perspective and Eric, you're going to do the project team perspective. Um, Chad, what are your thoughts on the marketing side for this program? Yeah, so from the, the sales and marketing side, um... I'm I'm a diabetic, so I'll use that kind of as the example. Um, so, from sales and marketing, we've got all this data. We're in a healthcare company. Um, say a new a new drug comes out, right? That will help diabetics keep their blood sugar in range. Um, I can use all the data of everybody who who has uh, come into our clinic. I know what their if I've got their lab results, I know what their A1C is, which measures how good you're doing on your blood sugar. We could say anybody who's got an A1C of, um, say, eight or above, we're going to go contact them and say, hey, there's this new drug that would help you um, keep your blood sugar in control. And then that way we we can make some more money <laughs> as opposed to them going to somebody else to get that same drug. Totally. And Eric, what are your thoughts on the project team side? Yeah, I don't like it from the project team side because it's a lot of data to deal with. So I've, now I've got to figure out how to you know, if we're going through a digital transformation and that's the kind of project team we're talking about, that's just a lot of data for me now to figure out how I'm going to map it all to the new system or systems, how I'm going to clean it up, um, how I'm going to migrate it, test it, um, clean it up, all that stuff. So from that perspective, that's just too much for a project team to deal with effectively. And it's probably going to slow down our project. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's super cool to see the different perspectives and how everybody can have a different perspective depending on your position. Um, so we're gonna, for the audience, we're gonna move on to a different data retention program now. Um, so you know, and we'll do the same thing. Eric and Chad will each get four different perspectives and we will debate each one. If you wanna comment and share your thoughts on each perspective, we'd love to hear what you guys are thinking. For the next data retention program, it's going to be zero to two years. You're going to keep the data from two to three years, you're gonna back it up and anything over three years old, you're gonna delete it. 
It is in the manufacturing industry and the end users are implementing the policy. So with that said, Eric, your perspective to start is going to be on the sales marketing side and Chad, yours is going to be the CISO um, position. So Chad, what are your thoughts from that standpoint? Well, I, I like the fact that uh, we're going to have a lot less data. <laughs> that, that, that's a good thing um, because the you know manufacturing has a, a lower cost per record if it's breached, but it's still scope, right? Like things I have to take care of. I have to go through and figure out who's going to have the right access to the data. If there's less of it, that, that makes my job a little bit easier. Um, the, the one thing I don't like about the policy, though, is that the end users are the ones implementing it. So if the, it, if the end users are doing it, I, I've seen that, that, that story uh, play out before. It's not going to happen. <laughs> right. Right. Makes sense. And Eric, what are your thoughts about it from the marketing side? Yeah, I definitely don't like it from the marketing side. I feel like I, sh I feel like I've disliked every policy so far, um, but <laughs> I, I don't like it from the sales and marketing side because I'm trying to sell and market to our customers to create long-term repeat business. Um, we're constantly in, improving or constantly introducing new products to the marketplace and we want to go back and market to people that maybe haven't bought from us for a while. So from that perspective, uh, two years just isn't enough to, to keep that data. So I, I would love to see it be a lot a lot greater than that, a lot more retention than what we're seeing there. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so we're going to keep the same program and we're going to switch perspectives here. Chad, you're going to go to HR and Eric, you're going to do ops. What are you thinking from an operations standpoint for this program? Eric? Still don't like it. You're still not convincing me that I, I should like it <laughs> because, <laughs> because now it's, you know, I don't have I don't have all that uh, history of all my production history and um, certainly all the, you know, master data of products that are, are um, sub assemblies or raw materials. Maybe we used in the past, but we haven't used recently. I'm going to need that stuff, you know, within two, you know, maybe greater than two years out. So if that stuff goes away, that data goes away and I don't have access to it, that's going to make things a lot more complicated operationally. And I'm going to be recreating the wheel along the way to try to recreate that data. Yeah, makes sense. And Chad, what are your thoughts on the HR perspective? Uh, mostly like like the policy because of the the limited liability. Um, the manufacturing, especially nowadays, it's a lot more. You're getting a lot more automation, so I don't have as many employees. Um, but one of the things that um, I that I don't like about it is that it's going to it's going to follow the end users. So that means from an HR perspective that um, now we've got to communicate that out. We got to make sure people are actually following the policy um, and then, you know, like take action where we have problems. Yeah, totally. Um, for the next perspective, same program again, same implementers. So end users are still implementing it. Um, Eric, you're going to take the CEO perspective and Chad, you're going to be the project team perspective. Chad, what do you think from the project team perspective? Um, firstly, I think it's, uh, it's not good that we, the way we randomized the departments, Eric, cause you're right. You kind of fell on the, uh, you know, kind of the same position, I'm, I think <laughs> I'm the, the negative, the, I'm the negative, really. the, I'm the buzzkill. <laughs> right. Right. Like I, our randomizer didn't work so good. Did it for the, uh, <laughs> no, it for the departments? We got to, we got to build a new randomizer. Right. Um, so from the project team perspective, the, um, I'm trying to get the, I'm trying to get the project done quick. 
I'm, I want to get, um, I want to have as little to deal with as possible. Um, so I, I like the idea of not as much data. Um, the, it could impact me a little bit as I'm doing the, the migration. So say I've got one system, the old system that I'm working off of, and it's got a, um, We've got users in there saying, I need to follow this policy. I'm going in and deleting data. Well, I'm in the middle of a migration here. So I'm like, I'm migrating the data. If they're deleting it as I'm trying to migrate, that can run into some problems when they go to the new system, say, oh, my data's not there. You don't know who deleted it. Um, but mostly I, I, I like it because it's, uh, it's less scope for me. Right. And Eric, from the CEO perspective, what are you thinking? Yeah, st still don't like it because um, I'm, I'm trying to grow the company. I'm trying to dr uh, grow revenue. I want our sales guys and gals to be able to have access to past customer data, transactional history, all that stuff. Um, you know, the IT and cybersecurity guys, they'll, they'll figure out the, the, you know, the, the downside of it. I'm, I'm not too worried about it. I mean, it can't be that difficult, right? I'm a CIO. I'm going to sit in my ivory tower and assume that IT can, can solve it all for us. So <laughs> for that reason, I'm going to say it's a bad, it's a bad thing. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, and for the last perspective of the show, um, Eric, we're going to give you both the owner. Um, and if you could share different sides of being the owner, whether it's good or bad, that would be great from that perspective. So maybe Chad, you go first for the owner perspective. Yeah. So, um, so from the owner perspective, I'm going to say it's a good thing. So I'm, I'm assuming my manufacturing company uh, has slimmer margins on, on what I'm producing. So the, the less is more, less data I have to, to, I don't less, it's less storage that I have to pay for. It's less security. Um, so I, I like it from that perspective of keeping my costs down. Yeah. And Eric, what are your thoughts as an owner with this program? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm trying to grow the company and yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're constantly introducing new products, um, like similar to my CEO perspective before, I suppose. But I'd say, you know, as an owner, um, it's not a good thing. I want to, I want to protect that asset um, as the owner. There's a lot of value in that data, so uh, I'd, I'd want to see us keep more, more of that data over time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that wraps up all the different perspectives that we have planned for today. So I'm going to hand it back over to Eric for the closing. All right. Sounds good. Well, um, actually, this this is my closer right here. This is from YouTube. Uh, <laughs> Eric, you are the bomb. Right there. <laughs> That's from uh, Ed Tolia from on uh, YouTube. So thank you for that. That came in right as you were handing it over to me. So I had to share that. Um, no, I, I guess just to, to wrap it up and I'll, I'll leave you up here too, Darian, just for this last question. But, um, you know, from from now that we've covered all these different perspectives, um, and we've, we, you've helped us unpack this, Chad, you know, this whole concept of trade-offs and the competing priorities within an organization. And certainly when you consider regulatory stuff as well, there's some external factors that oftentimes are competing, create competing priorities. Um, what, what are some of the next steps? Like, how do I, how do I make sense of this? I'm, I'm on a project team or an executive within an organization. How do I, what do I do? How do I get started? What are, what are some recommendations you have? Yeah, so I think the the one of the first things to keep in mind is that um, if you increase complexity, that means you're going to increase your labor and your costs, right? So keep it simple as much as possible. That's kind of the kind of the first thing to consider. Um, then secondly, I'd say classify your data. Go through your data. Um, either have 
like an external um, consultant company maybe come in and go through and help you determine all the different types of data you have. And, you know, like you can debate whether or not how accurate the data is for the cost per record, but maybe use that to kind of help you determine um, how valuable the data is. So almost like assigning a value to that data when you're doing the classification. Um, 100% look at your industry regulations because you don't want to be violating any of those because that could come back to, to bite you in multiple ways. Um, the uh, And then solicit feedback from multiple departments. Um, and kind of tied with that is like even if you're not able to solicit feedback and get everybody's opinion on what you should have in it at least clearly communicate what your policy is and why so that way you're not creating problems within departments you know like i work in nit um if your policy is to keep all the data then it makes a lot it makes it a lot easier for me to come in when i'm saying we need more budget for storage because everybody's like, okay, well, yes, we know that's our policy. We're going to keep that data for that long. So clearly communicating it helps make things easier within the organization. Um, and then kind of the, um, the last thing to add to that is there is a, um, which consultants can help with, which is the uh, business impact analysis. So you can go through and look at, you know, like at, from now you got your data classified. If I were to lose this data, what would happen? If you know, like from a, I didn't have it available to me from an operations perspective, or if I were to lose it in a breach, what would happen just so you get an idea of the scenarios before they actually do. And then that way you can make better decisions about um, your data. Right. Do you recommend there being a, a sort of a committee or a board or something that, that comes together with different stakeholders, different perspectives to make these decisions or like from a decision-making or governance perspective yeah. to do what you just said, how do you, how do you recommend doing that? Yeah, I think it's um, maybe not necessarily a, a board unless one already exists. So a lot of companies have a change management board, right? Like you talked quite a bit about change management. Um, that might be the, the best place to have that discussion. Um, but even if not, just when you're either first implementing your policy, getting everybody together, just kind of the um, for a day or two, right? To go through everything and kind of define your policy um, and then maybe review that every some sort of cycle, whatever's right for your company, whether that's a year, whether that's every three years, just to go back and say, has anything changed from a regulation perspective, which you'll see policies get changed quite a bit from regulations. Like legal teams will say, well, this regulation changed. Now we got to update the policy. Well, that should be a trigger to get everybody together again, as opposed to just change the policy. Mm. Yeah. That's that's good stuff. Good advice. Well, well, thanks for being here, Chad. Really appreciate it. And how do, sure. how do people learn more about LAE Software? How do they get in touch with you? What's the best way? Yeah, so leesoftware.com um, is our website. And then uh, also you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and then also my email address is just chad at LAE Software. All right, great. Thanks, Chad. And thanks to the audience for the great questions and for your support during the uh, the moderated debate between Chad and I as we took different perspectives there and we had some great questions from the audience too. Uh, we've got a lot more to cover. We're going to unpack that conversation a bit more with Darian and I here in just a moment. We're also going to get to the tech skills shortage here in a moment as well. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling and I'm the CEO and founder of Third Stage Consulting. Before we dive too far into today's content, 
I want to invite you to learn a little bit more about Third Stage Consulting, who we are and what we do. I've included a link to a video right here that describes Third Stage in a bit more detail. It talks about our story, our history, our philosophy, our clients, our service offerings, and that sort of thing. But in general, what Third Stage Consulting does is we're an independent and tech agnostic consulting provider. We help clients through their entire digital transformation life cycles, beginning with digital strategy, software evaluation and selection, all the way through and including implementation planning, implementation readiness, and the actual implementation itself. We're technology agnostic, so we only represent our clients' best interests. We do not represent software vendors. But having said that, we work very closely with software vendors, all the leading players that you can imagine we've worked with, both in helping clients evaluate and select them, but also in helping clients implement those solutions as well. So we have a very broad, objective, agnostic view of the market that is meant to really represent your interest as you go through your digital transformation. I also encourage you to scan this QR code right here to get access to our resource center. This resource center has a ton of information, ton of eBooks that are free. You have access to top 10 software rankings, playbooks for how to make your project more successful, guides to change management, YouTube videos, all kinds of stuff that are gonna help you through your digital transformation. So I encourage you to scan this QR code to get access to those resources. And please feel free to reach out to me directly to brainstorm ideas about your project. Even if it's just informally, you want to bounce around some ideas and get some informal advice, I'd be happy to spend some time with you. So feel free to reach out to me. I've included my contact information below. You can also find it in the description field of this video as well. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 159. My name is Eric Kimberling with Darian Fiakuski. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. The show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent tech agnostic consulting firm that helps clients with their digital transformations, including the digital strategy and implementation components of transformation. Uh, we just had Chad Baker on the show talking about data management, data retention within digital transformation. What were some of your thoughts and takeaways from that conversation, Darian? Yeah, so I think one of my biggest takeaways was being able to understand that everybody can have a different perspective on or opinion on what's best for one company for a data retention plan. Um, and everybody can have different opinions depending on your position and what maybe you're focusing on will be best for the company. What are your some of your takes that you had? Well, I mean, I guess it's same thing. I mean, it's it's a lot of different perspectives and angles you've got to consider. But I think the big open question that still exists for me, and I think this is partially because I didn't come from a corporate IT upbringing. I've always been a, a third-party consultant throughout my entire career, um, is I don't fully understand still how organizations make those decisions effectively. I mean, I know, you know, I asked that question toward the end, and Chad talked about how, um, you know, a lot of times they assign one person to be in charge of the policy. Um, that, you know, obviously that leaves you open to a bunch of blind spots, especially if that person doesn't take into consideration all the different conflicting priorities and competing priorities. Um, but then the question becomes, well, you know, if you have one person in charge, are they just going to succumb to the political pressure or to the path of least resistance internally, or are they going to make the right decision for the business and, and who it is that is making that right decision? I guess I still have questions about, but I think, you know, maybe if, if we view it from the perspective of like a digital transformation or an ERP implementation, if you implement new software, it's easy to delegate to a person and just say, you know, Darian, go implement the software, just go figure out how you think it should work. And you're probably going to come back with something in some ways that matches what I as an executive or a team member might want. 
but there's going to be other things you were guessing on because you didn't know or you don't know what the priorities are that are going to be off base for the organization as a whole. So with digital transformations, you know, you, you, we talk a lot about how you want executive involvement, executive buy-in, executive sign-off and support, and maybe there's something along those lines we need to have from a data perspective more commonly where you have an executive team or a steering committee or whatever that not only sets the priorities and the parameters for some of those competing uh, priorities, but also ultimately blesses or agrees on whatever the agreed upon or proposed policy is. And I think that last part that I described, that's the part that's missing. I think it gets delegated or relegated to IT or someone else within the organization. Yeah, what a great conversation that we had. And I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation talking about our tech talent shortage. Yeah, yeah, we're going to um, actually play you a clip from a relatively new YouTube video on my YouTube channel where I talk about the tech skill shortage and what it means to your digital transformation and how you can navigate those risks, as well as what it means to your career. So I'm going to look at it from both angles of if you're a project team member going through digital transformation, there is a tech skill shortage. What do you do about it? Um, and then we'll also talk about from the perspective of if you're in the industry, there's an opportunity here uh, for you to maybe capitalize on the tech skill shortage. So we'll talk about that as well. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back and we'll get to that tech skill shortage discussion here in just a moment. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Transformation Ground Control, episode number 159. My name is Eric Kimberling here at Darian Fiakuski. You can find new episodes every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And uh, the show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, an independent tech agnostic consulting firm, and it's sponsored by Major Tom Productions. Now, um, I want to play this clip. This is a YouTube video that was recently featured on my YouTube channel and uh, performed well, generated a lot of interest and discussion uh, on social media. So we thought we'd play it for you here in this podcast to, to discuss here as a group in, in this community. And uh, it's about the tech skill shortage and what it means to your digital transformation, what it means to you in your career, what some of the risks are that you need to navigate, all that good stuff. So let's roll the clip and we'll come back and Darian and I will unpack it here in a bit more detail. As I mentioned at the top of the video, there is a tech talent shortage in the industry right now. In other words, there's not enough employees and skilled technologists to help the demand and to realize the demand of digital transformations in the ERP initiatives in the industry. This has pretty significant repercussions for digital transformations and for people in the tech industry that are trying to further their careers. So that's why I want to talk about here today is what is this tech talent shortage and what does it mean to us and what can we do to navigate the challenges of that shortage? 
Now, for more information and best practices about the technology and the digital transformation industry, I encourage you to read our ebook called Lessons from 1000 Digital Transformations. This book provides a number of lessons learned and tips based on having helped over 1,000 organizations through their implementations in recent years. You can read that book for free by scanning the QR code in front of you or by going to the links below. So first, it helps to understand what is the tech talent shortage and what's causing it. Well, first of all, as I mentioned, the tech talent shortage is exactly how it sounds. It means we don't have enough talent and enough people that know a certain type of technology or technology in general to support the demand for the number of implementations and digital transformations happening throughout the world. But what's causing this? This is something that's relatively new and, and it seems to be becoming a bigger deal as time goes on. Well, there's three primary influencers and contributing factors that's causing this tech talent shortage. First of all, you have the software vendors in the ERP industry and other industries as well that are largely pushing their customers from on-premise solutions on the legacy side of things to the newer cloud solutions. So you have a lot of forced migrations happening within the next few years, which is a pretty tight window of conversions for a lot of different organizations. Just to give you one example of a data point from one software vendor, research shows that SAP has only converted about one-third of their customer base onto their S4 HANA platform, which is their cloud platform that they're moving all their legacy customers onto. That means that you still have two-thirds of legacy SAP customers that have yet to make that transition to the cloud, and they have until 2027 to do that before support for the legacy products are cut off. So you can see that that's a pretty narrow window that's creating an artificial demand or a spike in demand from technologists throughout the world. The second thing that's causing this dynamic of shortages in the tech space is the fact that technology is changing so quickly, it's hard for technologists and the labor force in general to keep up with the newest, latest, and greatest technologies. So for example, if you think back 20 to 30 years, for those of you that remember the old mainframe systems, the green screens where you'd have to type in text and there was no graphical user interface, had a very customized or very specific programming language called RPG that you had to operate from, that was a very high demand skill set maybe 30 years ago. You had a lot of people that knew how to do RPG programming. Well, guess what? RPG is not a thing anymore. It's not very common. It's only used by a small subset of organizations that are still stuck on old systems. And if you haven't kept up with technological changes and gotten certified and trained in different newer technologies, you can see how not all the labor force is going to be able to keep up with those changes. And of course, now when you talk about artificial intelligence and cloud computing and all these other emerging technologies, it's constantly changing so quickly that it's hard for the labor force to keep up with the newest, latest, and greatest skills. Now, the third thing that's contributing to this tech talent shortage is just general unemployment being fairly low in many parts of the world, especially when you look at the Americas, Western Europe, and some of the other developed countries where we rely on getting a lot of our tech talent. You can see that with low unemployment means there's just not enough people to support the existing demand for labor, let alone this artificial spike in demand that I talked about a moment ago. So these are the three things that are contributing to the tech talent shortage. So let's shift gears next and talk about what this means to you and what you could do to navigate this challenge. The first thing you can do if you're an organization that's going through an ERP implementation or a technology initiative is to build plenty of buffer in your project plan. A lot of times what happens is software vendors will give you a proposal of how long they think it'll take based on perfect world scenarios, which might include the assumption that you have plenty of talent and plenty of resources to support your project. Well, if we know that shortages are gonna be happening within the tech space and we know that we might have trouble getting the right resources at the right time, that might mean that we need to take a proposed project plan with a grain of salt and add a buffer. 
So in other words, if a proposal shows that technology could be deployed in 18 months, maybe we intentionally increase that to 24 months, knowing that we might have some labor shortage or tech talent issues throughout our project. So that's one thing we can do is build a buffer within our plan to account for the fact that it's likely we're gonna run into some sort of material resource shortage along the way during our implementation. Another thing we could do to navigate this challenge is to not be so dependent on outside third-party resources to support our digital transformations. One way to do that is to upskill our internal team, those people that are presumably going to be with the organization longer term beyond what a consultant or a technologist might be. And this is a great way for you to build the internal competencies, not only so you have additional resources that can support the project, but also so that you have people that can support the technology longer term long after the consultants have left. The other unintended benefit of leveraging internal resources for these sorts of projects is that now you have more ownership of the project and you don't have that sort of learned helplessness that a lot of organizations have when they just bring in an army of consultants to come take over the project for them. By building your own team and upskilling your own team to where maybe they're not as good or don't have as much depth or experience as an outside consultant, but they can still help further the project, what we have now is a situation where we're not so dependent and as affected by any sort of third-party shortage of technology resources. In essence, what we're doing is we're creating another pool of resources, creating our own pool of tech resources by training and upskilling them to the best of our ability. A third thing you can do to navigate this challenge, which is much like the first one, but slightly different, is to develop your own timeline, your own cadence, your own tempo that makes the most sense for your organization. So based on the fact that you may or may not have internal resources that are skilled technologists or based on the fact that you may or may not have access to some of the best and brightest outside technologists, you may want to build a plan that reflects that reality. In other words, you may not necessarily want to completely ignore a proposal you get from a software vendor, but you might create your own timeline and plan based on the realities of what skill sets you do and don't have. And this is something you should be doing anyway, even without tech talent shortages, you should be controlling the tempo of your project and taking ownership of the project. And this is just another way to do that. Now, so far, most of what I've talked about is what you can do to navigate the shortages in the tech industry if you're an organization going through a digital transformation. But what if you're a consultant or you're a CIO or someone that's trying to further your career and develop the skills necessary to succeed? Well, the good news is there's lots of opportunities now. Because we know there's so much demand for a limited pool of resources, that just means there's more opportunity for those of you that may want to further your careers or get into the technology consulting industry. So you can look at some of the big consulting firms, smaller consulting firms, mid-sized consulting firms like Third Stage Consulting where I work. You can look at all these different options you have out there and find ways to get training and to get experience with these organizations because chances are pretty high you're going to see a lot of vacancies and a lot of demand for job postings and job roles that are trying to be filled by these organizations. So the good news is it creates a lot of opportunity for people that are trying to further their careers within the technology consulting space. So I hope this has given you some guidance on how to navigate the realities of the tech talent shortage. For more information and lessons and best practices, I encourage you to read our free ebook called Lessons from 1000 Digital Transformations. It's a great read, it's a simple read, it's a way to unpack 20 different lessons from over 1000 different organizations that have recently gone through implementations. So I encourage you to read that book by scanning the QR code below, or you can go to the description field below for additional links. So I hope you found this information useful and hope you have a great day. So that's the YouTube video that I produced recently about the tech skills shortage. 
Uh, when I actually talk about this in a bit more detail with Darian and get her perspectives, and I know she's got a couple questions and comments for me too. So we're going to come back to that. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Could you whisper in my ear the things you want to feel? Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 159. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Darren Fiakuski. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com, so be sure to check it out there. And uh, be sure to share it with colleagues and friends that maybe aren't aware of this podcast as well. We'd love to get the word out to more people. So, uh, Darian, we were just talking about, or we just played the clip for my YouTube channel about the tech skills shortage. What were some of your questions, comments, takeaways from that video? Yeah, I think one big takeaway I had is how much opportunity SAP is creating in the space just by needing two-thirds more of their people um, or companies converted into their cloud system by 2027. I mean, that's coming up pretty fast, and that's a lot of work to be done with only one-third of that already being um, completed. So that's like one thing where... I'm not sure how they're going to accomplish all of that. What What are your thoughts on how will that even be accomplished by 2027? And do you even see that as a possibility for every company to be, then be finished? Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's possible. Not not only because even if there wasn't a tech skill shortage, I still don't think it would happen just because organizational inertia and trouble getting you know buy in and support and funds and resources for these big projects is just not going to happen for 100 percent of the organization. So. You know, if I had to speculate, I would imagine you're probably going to have at least 20 or 30% of SAP customers that are still on an old system by by 2027, maybe more, I don't know. Because um, you're right, it is a lot of a lot of conversions for a lot of really big companies that, that basically have three years starting now. And if two-thirds of them haven't even really started their conversion to S4HANA or started their journey off of their legacy SAP system, it's hard to imagine, especially with the tech skill shortage, how they're going to get it done. So I think the key here is not, you know, not to say, well, then we just won't do it at all, uh, because the right answer for you likely could be that you should start the journey now or start it soon. But the key is you just need to pace yourself and know that you need to add a buffer in your project plan and whatever proposed plan you get from SAP or whatever your software vendor is or whatever your um, implementation partner is, chances are pretty high that it's unrealistic, that it's not assuming that you're going to have a tech skill shortage in the industry. Um, because if you think about it, if I'm a sales rep, I don't know. I don't know who's available, who's not. I just know that in theory, the software could be implemented in X number of months or X number of years. Um, when the rubber meets the road, though, and I get into the project, and then I start experiencing the tech skill shortage and feeling that shortage, that's where the delays start happening and things start getting pushed out. It's not the only reason why things get pushed out, but that's that's a big part of it. So to answer your question, no, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think every customer is going to transition by 2027. Uh, but 
if you start the journey now, um, you know, you just want to make sure that during this window of this big spike in demand for tech skills, you just, you just need to add a buffer there and be realistic and know that you're probably going to go a bit slower than you might think or that others might be telling you. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that stood out to me um, during this video was the fact that not only is there a huge opportunity for people to join the tech industry, but also if they're already in it and advance their careers in it, but also for people coming maybe right out of college to find opportunities right into the tech industry and get some really good jobs and opportunities right out of that. What is your take on that? Um, and how can people that are maybe in that position coming out of college, how can they find those opportunities that you're saying there is? Yeah, well, I, I think first of all, there is there is a lot of opportunity and it's a good place to start on the more technical side. Um, I know when I got out of graduate school, when I when I have got my master's in business, um, I went to one of the big consulting firms and the first thing they did was send me to be certified in, in one of the big, in SAP, which is one of the big uh, ERP systems. And I resisted it at the time. I hated the idea of becoming a techie, but I'm really glad I did it because it just gave me a technical foundation that I didn't have. I didn't study computer science. I wasn't a super technical person coming into this industry. Uh, but because I was forced against my will in that way to go get certified and get more technical, uh, it actually benefited me in a huge way. And I found that it's a super powerful combination to have that technical background as well as the business understanding and that sort of thing. So I think there's always going to be a place for entry-level tech people because there's so much work that um, that needs to be done on that front. Now, I will say there's threats. You know, there's threats of offshoring, which has always been, you know, that's been a threat now for a couple decades for kids coming out of college. Um, and AI now is becoming a threat, too, because a lot of what people are doing on the customization or even the configuration and development side can now be largely automated by AI. But you still need some humans to interact and add some common sense and uh, business acumen to the use of AI. So there's still opportunity there. There's just threats. It's being disrupted. But I think in general, you're going to, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for young people out of school. I think the best place, even though I, I didn't, honestly, I didn't enjoy my time immensely at the big consulting firms. I, it just wasn't a good fit for me. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I stuck it out for at least a couple of years because I learned a lot. It was a good training ground for me, but I do think those big consulting firms are a good place to start just because they have such big teams, such big projects where they need um, entry-level people that can do some, some of the more technical work. Um, so um, I think it'd be a great place to start. You don't have to stay there your whole career. You can always move on and you, you open up a lot of options if you start off at one of those big consulting firms. Yeah, absolutely. What's a, there's some great opportunities out there. So that's definitely, it's definitely an exciting time for people in the tech industry, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, lots of shortage equals lots of opportunity. So uh, hopefully that uh, conversation helps uh, motivate you to get out there and find your place in the in the tech space if you're not already there or if you're trying to make a uh, change or pivot off where you are today. Hopefully that gives you some perspective on where you might start to look. So uh, I want to thank you, Darian, for a, a great episode here today. Thank you to the audience for uh, the great uh, questions and uh, interactions here today. And again, you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday by going to transformationgroundcontrol.com. Uh, the show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, an independent consulting firm that helps clients with digital transformations. I'm the CEO of that company. You can uh, learn more about us at thirdstage-consulting.com, or you can reach out to me directly. I've included my contact information below. I'd love to chat with you about your digital transformation initiative and how we might be able to help you through your journey. Um, we will see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. I hope we all have a great week in the meantime. Take care.